Well, good morning, Gateway family. Great to see you this morning. I want you to find in your copy of God's Word on your Bible app, Psalm number 53 this morning. Psalm 53. Last week we began a new section of the Psalms, a new theme or emphasis in the Psalms, and that was the theme of missions. By missions we mean taking the good news of Jesus to people who do not yet believe in Him. Missions being about God being glorified in the world. What the kids just sung about, to God be the glory. As people who are not worshiping Him begin to see Him for who He really is and begin to worship Him as they find forgiveness of their sins and reconciliation with the God who made them. We find the theme of missions throughout the whole Bible. Let me just remind you from last week, it's not something just in the Gospels or just in the New Testament. It's cover to cover. It goes all the way back to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis, when Israel was blessed by God and chosen by God, but they were blessed to be a blessing to how much of the world? How much of the world were they supposed, was going to be blessed through Israel? All of it, to all the nations. You go all the way to the end of the Bible then, to the book of Revelation. And around God's throne are people worshiping him from how many ethnic groups? How many? All of them. So Genesis, all the nations are going to be blessed. Revelation, last book, all the nations are then worshiping God around his throne. And everything in between Genesis to Revelation, including the Psalms right here, showing us God's plan to glorify himself as he makes himself known among all of the people's of the world. Now, last week we began with the foundation, and last week we saw that God has to stir our hearts to long for Him to be glorified in the world. That's not natural. It's not something you and I just come up with on our own, but it, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in us stirs us to where we begin to long for what God longs for, and that's to be known and to be worshiped throughout all of the earth. And the key verse last week was Psalm 4610. Remember last week I gave you a little test at the beginning to see if we knew the verse. And we knew the first half of the verse because we memorized the part about us, but the verse was much bigger. So I got Psalm 4610 up on the screen, but with some blanks in it for us. And I want to see if we can fill in the blanks this morning. So here's this morning's test, okay? See if you can do it with me. Be still and know that I, I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. There we go. You got it now. You now know all of Psalm 4610, not just the part they put over the mountain scenes and hang up in the Christian bookstores. You now see the whole verse there. And I'm glad you've been thinking on that this week and get that this verse is about God being exalted in all of the earth. God stirs our hearts as his followers to see that. But there's a second reality we come to this morning as we think about missions and God's glory in the world that God has to really stir our hearts and break our hearts to realize. And what is that? And that's the state of the world. In light of God's plan to be worshipped among all the peoples of the world, he now has to stir our hearts to see the reality of what's happening in the world today. As we come to Psalm 53, I want you to look for what is the state of the world. In light of God's plan to be worshipped by every ethnic group, what we see will happen in Revelation, what's happening in the world today. And then why would God remind us of this reality? So not just what's happened, but what is God trying to stir in our hearts by showing us these truths? So as we come to Psalm 53, can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? What a treasure we have to have the words of the Lord recorded for us here. Psalm 53, I'm reading out the English Standard Version. The words will also be on the screen for you. Psalm 53, to the choir master, according to Mahalath, a mascal of David. Verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. 
Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, we're thankful for the texts that are harder texts that bring us face to face with truths that can be a little bit unpleasant to us. But Lord, you are so good in showing us who you are and showing us what you're doing in the world. And I pray this morning, even as we look at what can be a tougher text, I pray today, God, that you would just open our eyes to it. And you would stir our hearts through this to see what you want us to see, to transform us and change us as your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So what I want you to see this morning from Psalm 53 is simply this. God breaks our hearts over the world's rejection of him. God breaks our hearts over the world's rejection of him. If last week the foundation of missions is that God desires to be glorified in all the earth. He desires to be worshipped and he deserves the worship of people in every ethnic group on the planet. He also has to now break our hearts over the fact that that is not happening. Psalm 53 for us is a reality check, as you will. If we look upon the world to see that God is not acknowledged as he should be and he's not worshipped as he should be around the world. And not just abroad, here at home in Montgomery as well. And God gives us texts like Psalm 53 to break our hearts, to give us a holy sadness over the things that break his heart, that grieve him as well. God breaks our hearts over the world's rejection of him. Now, first of all, I want us to realize at the outset, this is written to believers. This is a psalm for God's followers. Go down to verse 6. I want us to start at the end just to see the audience of who David is talking to right here. Verse 6, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. The original audience this was written for were Jewish followers of God, people who believed in God and were longing for the Messiah to come. You see in verse 6 here, these were people who were longing for salvation. They were longing for God's deliverance, what we now know has come in Christ. There were people who were longing to experience the blessings of God. We see there in the second part of that verse, when God restores the fortunes of his people, don't just think money there. This idea here of fortunes is blessings, God's kindness to his people. These are people who not only are longing for God's salvation, but longing to experience to being blessed by God and having God's favor upon them. And ultimately, it's verse 6, the last phrase, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is a people who are rejoicing in God, who are delighting in God. And so the audience here are people who know God's salvation, who experience his blessings and find joy in his presence. But that reality of finding joy in God doesn't mean we don't come face to face with some hard realities. And this psalm is designed to bring people who rejoice in God to a place of recognizing one of the the hard realities of this world. Go back to the subtitle at the very beginning of this. I call it verse zero, but the little title above verse one. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, the mascal of David. This is a song that was to be sung by God's people. Now, we don't really know what the Mahalath or the Maskell is. Scholars have absolutely no idea what those terms are supposed to be. We have some guesses, but we're not sure. We think they're musical in nature. That this is what we have before us here is a song to be sung. And that's a really strange thing to sing, isn't it? When was the last time you heard on the radio a song that sounded like Psalm 53? When was the last time you sang a song like Psalm 53 about fools rejecting God and about judgment coming on the world? But realize this truth is so important that God does not tell his people this. God had his people sing this back to him as a song. 
And not just once. This truth is so important and we tend to avoid it so much. God actually has his people sing this to him twice. I just want you to listen to another one of the psalms from a different part of the, of the psalm book here. And see if this doesn't sound familiar. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. No, I'm not reading out of Psalm 53. I promise you. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's any who understand who seek God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's not Psalm 53. That's Psalm 14. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are almost identical with about one verse that changes in the middle of that. They're almost identical. Why are there two psalms that are almost identical in the psalm book? Well, this wasn't when they started compiling the psalms that someone put Psalm 14 and someone put Psalm 53 and they got done. They got their finished product. Looked at goes, this is great. Oops. We put it in here twice. Oh, no. How did that happen? This was intentional. This truth is something that we tend to avoid. Just like with Psalm 4610, we focus on the part about us and miss the part about God's glory, we often do not take time to think about the reality of the world that God has made and if it's following God's plan and desire for the world. And so two times in the psalm book here, the psalms, the worship for the Jewish people, in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, you have nearly identical psalms that are lamenting the fact that the world has rejected God. God knows we need to see this truth. God knows we need to be reminded of this truth. So he had his people in two different places sing back to him this same truth that the world has rejected him. Now with that said, friends, this truth that God's people saying here in the Psalms and that we're reflecting on today is a truth that should lead us to brokenness in our hearts, not to pride. To people who have found the joy of knowing God, back to what we were looking at in verse 6 a few minutes ago, people who are rejoicing, who know the blessings of God, who know that God's going to give salvation to them, to such people when we realize that others in the world do not experience that, that shouldn't lead us to a place of feeling we're proud, more important, somehow more enlightened. It should lead us to the exact opposite, to a place of brokenness. Because it reminds us that we started where they are right now. We didn't get to this point because we're so smart and clever. We all started at the same place. This psalm was designed to humble us by taking us back to our state before we met God. Look down at verse 2 here. And the reality check for all of us that we all start in the same place. Verse 2, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. And when you see in the Bible God looking down, this is not God scratching his head trying to figure out what's going on on the earth. This is not a discovery mission, a reconnaissance mission for the Lord. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent, and he's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows everything. So God is everywhere and knows everything. There's nothing new that God is trying to discover here. When God looks down, he's looking down as a judge, just to, to pronounce a judgment over what he already knows is true. And what is the criteria the judge is looking for here in verse 2? He's looking at us to see if there's any who understand, any who seek him. The holy, righteous judge is looking upon all of humanity in judgment to see if there's any who seek him. Think back to Matthew and the great commandment, the command to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The holy judge who is everywhere is looking to see if there's anyone on the earth who loves him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when he looks at the world, and friends, when he looks at us before we met Christ, what does he see? Verse 3. They have all fallen away. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Friends, we were in that group at one point. 
We don't have a place of superiority in this because we were there. When God looks at the world, when he looked at us before Christ, we were part of the all who have fallen away. We were part of the all who were correct. We were part of the none who does good. We were part of the not even one. He looked at us and saw that we were corrupt. That means we were guilty to the core, that in our very heart of hearts, there was sin that affected all of us, that we have fallen away, that we were not seeking after him. And that's where we all started. That's why I love the way it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. I love how it describes it for us. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Psalm 53 in 1 Peter 2 humbles us by reminding us that, yes, we now know in Christ God's salvation. Yes, that we have the blessings of God upon us. Yes, we have joy in Christ. But friends, we can take no credit for that. All we bring is our sin and God does everything else. The salvation, the blessings, even the joy he puts in our heart is all his grace gift to us. We have nothing to contribute apart from our sin. And so when we come to face-to-face with the brokenness of the world and the sinfulness of the world, we don't look down and gaze upon them with a sneering look that we're somehow above them. We were there too, apart from the mercy of God that grabbed us out of it. And so God gives us these truths not to puff us up, but to break our hearts. And particularly to break our hearts that most of the world still rejects him like we once did. Look at the reality of the world. Go back to verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Now, friends, I want to clarify some terms here for us because you see the word fool, and when we hear the word fool, we typically think stupid, right? So it makes really stupid decisions would be how we classify a fool. We look at it a lot of times in terms of intellect. In the Hebrew, which is where the Old Testament was written in, there was three distinct words for fool. And not one of them had anything to do with mental ability. Every word in the Hebrew that deals with the word fool has to do with morality, or should I say immorality. A fool in the Old Testament was someone who made immoral choices, who it's not about mental ability, it's about their choices. So here in Psalm 53, the fool is the person who seeks to be independent from God and his commandments. So don't miss that. A fool is someone who seeks to be independent from God and his commandments. Fools don't want to be under God's authority. They don't want to follow God's command. The fool wants to be independent from God and independent from his commandments. They want to live like there's no creator. They want to live like there's no one they're accountable to. They want to live by their own standards, not his standards. Hence, you see in that next phrase, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, again, let me clarify here, because when we hear the phrase, there is no God, we think to someone who is a professing atheist. Now, that would be included in this, but this is much broader than that. This is referring to anyone, again, who wants to live as if in independence from God. Friends, there are so many people today who would say, oh, yeah, there's a God. But you look at their life, and they're not living submitted to God's authority. They're not living with any concern at all about the commands of God. There's many people who fill the churches of America today who, of course, would say, oh, there's a God. But they're living practically like there is no God because they're doing their own thing. A fool is one who seeks to be independent from God and his commandments. And out of that heart attitude flows a life full of sin. Because isn't sin really us shaking our fist at God, saying, I'm going to do it my way, not yours? That's the heart of folly here, the heart of a fool who says there is no God. And you see the life that results. Back in verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So what happens out of that heart attitude? They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity, which is another word for sin. There is none who does good. Three different actions, all meaning the same thing of a life full of sin. Now, what do you do with that phrase, there is none who does good? Because you're like me, you've met people who are 
professing non-believers, even professing atheists, they do some good things and some nice things in the community or out there. What doesn't mean there's none who does good. It means that everything we do apart from Christ is tainted by sin. doesn't mean there can't be some nice things we do outwardly, but everything we do is tainted by sinful motives and has sin woven all throughout it. And in God's eyes, ultimately, it means there's nothing good we can do to get back to God. There's a great verse that explains that, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. We've all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like what? A polluted garment. Our righteous deeds are like what? So, yeah, even a non-believer can do things that may appear outwardly good, but in God's eyes, I love one of the other translations that says it's like filthy rags in God's eyes. That There's no amount of good we can do to earn our way to God or gain his favor because our sin taints all we do. That's what this is talking about here. There's none who does good. The sin taints everything that is done, and in God's eyes, they're simply filthy rags. They're polluted garments because God sees our hearts and sees our sin. And so when the Old Testament, when David wrote this, most of the world rejected God. Most of the world was not following God. Most of the world was not submitting to his commands and living under his lordship. They were choosing their own ways, a life full of sin and folly. And the same is true in New Testament times. If Psalm 53 sounds familiar, you're going scratching your heads thinking, I've heard this before. You have, because Paul quotes this exactly. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. See if this doesn't sound familiar again. As it is written, no one, none is righteous, no, not one. Sound familiar? Verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. And then in verse 12, all have turned aside together, they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Sounding familiar here? Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Romans 3 are all telling us the exact same thing, that our hearts are so prone to want to miss, that, that we all have sin in our life. Hence, Paul concludes in Romans 3.23 in a very well-known verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, the same is true today. It was true in the Old Testament times when the Psalms was written. It was true in the New Testament times when Paul wrote this. And it's true today where we are in 2019. Most of the world rejects God. Now, the reality check for us, friends, that means there's billions of people on this earth who reject God. Billions of people who are choosing not to worship the one true God. Billions of people reject God and live as fools as if there was no God. And God tells us to break our hearts. Now, I want to clarify something here. When I talk about the world rejecting God, there's really two groups in this, and we need to make sure we understand it includes both groups. Rejecting God includes people who have heard about him and choose not to believe. That's included in this. That would be people who have heard the message of the gospel and say, no, I'm going to keep following the Allah of Islam, or I'm going to keep following Buddha, or I'm going to keep following whatever. They've chosen a different path, and they're not worshiping the one true God, though they've heard about him. They've rejected him. This includes people who are atheists who would say there is no God. This would include people who would just say, I really don't care. I'm going to live for myself. All those would be people who've heard the gospel and have chosen not to believe. That is those who've rejected God. We need to be very clear as well. Rejection of God also includes those who've never heard but are not believing in him either. That's included in this number as well. That's not popular today. There's a lot of people today who hold to this wider hope that surely God will be merciful to people who have never heard his name. But the scripture is really clear for us. There's only one path to God. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 gives us a little bit of enlightenment on this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now before we go on there, it's revealed against all ungodliness. God's holy wrath, his judgment is for sin. 
It's not just for rejecting Christ. So people don't get punished by God and go to hell just because they, have, because they heard Jesus and rejected. They go to that to hell because they're sinners who offended a holy God. And all of the world falls under that. But the reality is who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 19, he carries on there. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, means his characteristics, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without what? Without excuse. Now, I know it's not popular today, but Scripture is clear to us that there's no one who can stand before a holy God one day guilty in their sin and stay before the judge. You know, I never heard who Jesus was. You can't condemn me. God looks at him and says, look at my world I made. It declares that I am here, and you've chosen to keep living for yourself. You've not sought after me. There's none who seek God. Therefore, everyone is guilty. Carries on in Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22. See if this sounds familiar here. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The reality is every single person on the planet is guilty before God, whether or not they've heard the name of Jesus or not. That's why in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, you see the very clear assertion from the early disciples, there is salvation in no one else. And there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We believe very strongly that there's only one path to God. And that's why it's so imperative for us to get the hope of Jesus to the world. Yes, there's many who've heard of God and heard of Jesus and know his name and reject him. But friends, best numbers I can find in the world today, there are 1.6 billion people who've never heard the name of Jesus. 1.6 billion, not million, billion who have never had a chance to open the word of God, to see the name of Christ, to see the character of God. It's like 1.6 billion people who are condemned and have never even heard there is a hope of salvation. And you all have the many who've heard and still outright reject him. The reality check for the world today is that most of the world has rejected God, either by living for themselves and not having had a chance to hear, or having heard and outright rejecting him. And the tough reality that follows from that I alluded to a minute ago is that everyone who rejects God will face his holy judgment one day. Everyone who rejects God will be judged by a holy God. Look at verse 5. And I know it's not a pleasant verse, but it's a truth that God believes we need to know. Verse 5, there they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame for God has rejected them. Now, what is this about? Remember the audience. These were Jewish people in the time of Israel. These are poetic descriptions of judgment that they would get of enemies around them being scattered, of enemies being put to shame. These are all pictures they would get of God's judgment among people who had opposed God's people. But the key verse to get to the meaning here for us is that very first part there, verse 5. There they are in great terror where there is no terror. What does this mean? This means sudden judgment is coming. This is judgment where it is not expected. This is where people who have convinced themselves there is no God, when they see him face to face one day, they may not have had any terror in their life, but there will be terror at that moment. That's what it's a picture of. People perhaps who thought there was a God, but God just winks at sin and he's not going to really hold them accountable. When they see the holy God in all of his glory and grandeur and brilliance, and they realize that they've offended him, there will be terror. That is what is described for us here. Again, Paul picks up on this theme in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's many in the world, billions in the world today, who are convinced they are okay. 
and they will one day stand before a holy God and terror will overtake him. So I was reading this week and thinking about this. I came across a, someone's description this, that, that really made me stop in my tracks and think about it. And I never really thought about it quite this way. This person was arguing in their writings pretty convincingly. If you think about it, when we stand before God, clothed in Christ's righteousness, when we see God's face, yes, there'll be a holy reverence that we'll feel, but there will be joy and delight. When we see the face of God the first time, we will have a mix of reverence with joy and delight. But when the billions who've never heard the name of Jesus and the billions who've heard and rejected, when they see that same face, it won't be joy and delight like we feel. It'll be sudden terror where there is no terror. The face that brings us joy is the face that brings terror to billions in the world. And God reminds his people in song, twice in the song book here, of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, of this truth. That the reality is the world rejects God. The world is not worshiping him as they should. Why? Why would God put such a sad truth before us? Why would God put such a hard truth before us? And it's quite simply this. He shows us it's because he wants to work through us to change that reality. God wants to work through us. It's his work, not ours. But he wants to work through us to bring people to place of worshiping him. So who is going to tell the lost world there's hope of a savior? Us. Who is going to call them to quit rejecting God and start worshiping God? us. Who is going to tell them the hope of Christ and Christ alone is us, his people. So God shares this hard reality and has his people in the Old Testament are seeing this hard reality. Again, think about this. They're singing Psalm 53 out loud in corporate worship. He has them sing this because he wants to break their hearts this reality so they begin to step out in obedience to be involved in his work of making him known. So he'll be worshipped over all the earth. Perhaps no text helps us clearly see this connection more than 2 Corinthians chapter 5. To me, it's one of the most stunning texts in Scripture, one of the most mind-boggling texts in Scripture. Not because it's hard to understand. It's really simple to understand. But because it's so mind-boggling to me, God's plan. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 17 for us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The oldest pathway, behold, the new has come. That's beautiful. That's one of those things we frame and put over our sofas also, right? That this what God has done in rescuing us. And we rejoice in that. And we rightfully should rejoice in that. But again, we must not stop there. Verse 18 carries on with it. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now, again, the, too often we stop there. That all needs to be celebrated. God has done this. I could never get to God. I was lost in my sins. You were lost in your sins. We had no hope on our own of getting before a holy judge and standing on our own. So God... From him, he reconciled us to himself. But notice the and here. Because so often in our Christian lives, we focus on the first half of this verse. He reconciled us and he gave us the what? The ministry of what? He gave us that. Friends, let that sink in. That God in his infinite wisdom and mercy not only looked at us in our filth and our sin and our wretchedness and goes, I'm going to redeem you and rescue you and forgive you and save you. He's going to say, I'm going to do all that and I'm going to send you out so I can work through you to do that for others as well. That is mind-boggling to me. Friends, that's not just for the missionaries. That's not just for the pastors or the elders of churches. If you are in Christ, if you've been reconciled to God, God has given to you the ministry of reconciliation. This is for every believer has been given this ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation, restoring people who've been offended. God has been offended by people's sin, and he has given to us the ministry of sharing his message so that he can reconcile with people who have offended him so he can forgive their sin and they can be restored to a relationship with him and begin to worship him for who he really is. It carries on, though. It gets even more amazing. Verse 19. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins against them. And notice this word, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Let, let that sink in. 
the God who spoke the world into being, the God who spoke a billion trillion stars appear, is the God who speaks and declares he's going to entrust to us this precious, sacred message for the world that the world can be reconciled to him. He's entrusted it to our care. And then verse 20, it just keeps getting more amazing. Therefore, okay, in light of all this, we are ambassadors for Christ. And this is not just the career missionaries, friends. This is every believer. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through who? Through us. God making his appeal through who? This is God's work, friends. This is not us. It's not us with our clever strategies, us doing anything except for being obedient. As we speak the unchanging message of the gospel, God makes his appeal. His word is the one that does the appeal. But we have a task there. There's the next thing. What are we supposed to do? What's the next word? We what? Implore. So we sit by passively and hope the missionaries go do it. Now, we implore. We have been entrusted. If you are in Christ, not only are you reconciled to God, he's entrusted to you this task for him to work through you, to share his word, to implore others on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because that is stunning to us. God breaks our heart. He shares with us Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and Romans 3 and other texts to remind us of how broken the world is. Not so we feel good about ourselves, but so we are so thankful for what he's done in us. And so it drives us out to obey him because he wants to use us to point others to him. As exciting as that is, though, there's a sobering warning in Psalm 53 that goes with this task that God has entrusted to us. And that is verse 4. Here's the reality. Not as if the brokenness of the world is not enough of a reality check. Psalm 53 brings us back even more. Look at verse 4. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? The reality check for us here is that the world that hates God also hates his people. And God is sending us out on an incredible mission to be his ambassador, but it's going to be tough. It's going to be challenging. The word eat up here in verse 4 literally means to destroy, to harm, to take away from. And the reality is, as we seek to make God known to the nations, they will eat up God's people. They will reject God's people. They will destroy and harm. Now, not all, because again, Revelation 7, 9 we saw last week, there will be people who God is preparing and God is stirring their hearts, and they will worship, but the, the task to get to them will not be easy. Many get eaten up. In the process. Friends, the world that rejects God is not excited when his ambassadors come telling them how they can be reconciled to God. That was true for Israel. You think about the Old Testament, the account after account after account of the enemies who oppose God's people. It was true for the early church, if you as you reread Acts and think about the book of Acts, how much persecution and suffering God's people endured by simply trying to proclaim the hope of Jesus Christ to other people. And friends, it's true for us today. We've lived in a culture of relative ease and haven't had to experience a whole lot, but that's the anomaly in world history, not the norm. John chapter 15, we looked at it about two years ago, so that's probably a little bit of a blur to all us, but John chapter 15 reminds us of this reality for us today. John 15, verse 19, Jesus is speaking and says very clearly, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world does what? The world hates you. Okay, verse 20, he carries on. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they maybe one day perhaps might, for a few of you, no, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And then verse 20, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So the reality for God's followers, Old Testament, New Testament today, is the world that rejects God isn't very excited when his ambassadors come. So why is God telling us this? Again, this is not a feel-good text. It's not one that we frame and hang up in our bathrooms at home. Why does God give us Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and Romans 3? 
And I want to kind of expand what I want you to see for a main idea. This is where I want us to conclude with today. God breaks our hearts over the world's rejection of him to prepare us to be used by him regardless of the cost. God is breaking our hearts. God showed us, shows us throughout the whole scripture, it's all for his glory, it's all for him being worshipped, that he deserves to be worshipped by all the peoples of the world. And so he stirs our hearts with that longing, that God-given longing to see him worshipped in all the world. But then he has to break our hearts, not just stir our hearts that he, that he deserves to be worshipped, he breaks our hearts over the fact that there's billions on the earth not worshipping him. And he shares these hard truths with us, not to make us miserable, not to get us feeling all sad. He shares it because he wants to use us. He's preparing us to see the need of the world, to see his glory, because he wants to work through us regardless of the cost. God is breaking our hearts over the world's rejection of him to prepare us to be used by him regardless of the cost. So in light of Psalm 53, I want to ask you, friends, and ask myself, is God stirring our hearts to realize he's working in all the world? Are we sensing the Holy Spirit stirring us to come behold the works of God? Are we sensing in our hearts that we see that God is going to be glorified and exalted in all the earth? Is God stirring our hearts with that? Friends, with that is God breaking our hearts over the billions in Montgomery and abroad and all these people who are not worshiping him. Our hearts broken that the all-glorious, amazing God who's revealed himself to us is not being worshiped like he deserves. Our hearts broken over that. Our hearts broken for the billions in the world who are lost in their sins, who do not have the hope and joy and peace we have, who are not giving God the glory that he deserves. And out of that, friends, is God stirring our hearts because he wants to use us to be his ambassadors. So friends, ultimately the question then becomes for us, are you and I willing to be his ambassador? Are we willing, both here and abroad, with people we meet here in Montgomery and people that we pray for and will meet overseas one day, are we willing to be his ambassador to implore people of the hope of Christ, to implore people to come worship the one true God who deserves their worship, to implore people to come be reconciled to God and find peace and joy and forgiveness of their sins they can find no other way? Are we willing to be his ambassadors? Friends, God breaks our hearts over the world's rejection of him to prepare us to be used by him regardless of the cost. This week, can I ask you to pray just two things? Here's our homework for the week. What I'd like for us to pray this week is simply this. Lord, would you break my heart over the lostness of the world? Friends, what would happen if God stirs our heart to be consumed with him being glorified and that he breaks our heart where that's not happening? God, break my heart over the lostness of the world. And then second of all, show me how you want to use me. God, break my heart and show me how you want to use me. Because the reality is 2 Corinthians 5, friends, for you and I, it doesn't matter what our job is, what our career is, where we live. If we are in Christ, we are ministers of reconciliation. God has a plan to use us in some way for his purposes of glorifying himself. So God, break my heart over the losses of the world this week and show me how you want to use me. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for your word on the text that make us leaving feeling really good and happy and upbeat. But Lord, we thank you for your word and the texts like this that are harder and that are very sobering in a lot of ways. But Lord, you're so good. Lord, you tell us these things not just to give us sadness, but because you want to transform us and change us. When I pray that would happen in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters, God, that we wouldn't leave here today just feeling down and sad over the brokenness of the world. But God, with a holy stirring from you, to want to see you glorified, to want to see you glorified in every neighborhood in Montgomery, to want to see you glorified among all the peoples of the world, to want to see you worship, because God, you are so worthy of worship. God, would you in my heart and the heart of these brothers and sisters this week stir our heart affections to see more of your glory, to see more of your beauty, to see more of who you really are, so that we fall on our own knees in utter amazement and awe and worship of you. 
But Lord, give us much grace to not stop there. To realize, God, that you've reconciled us to yourself and made us ministers of reconciliation. Father, that is mind-boggling. And I pray that would be mind-boggling to all of us this week. That your plan is to entrust to us the ministry of reconciliation, this ministry of the gospel message to take to our neighbors and take to people in the uttermost parts of the earth. And so Lord, this week, would you just stir our hearts to find joy and delight and contentment in your presence? Yeah, would you break our hearts as well over the lostness of the world, not just to lead us to a place of being down, but to lead us to a place of saying, Lord, use me. Whatever you want, Lord, use me. Lord, we confess that you're our Lord, that you're our boss, you're our master. I pray when it comes to this, to being used by you, God, that you give us much grace. I know for many of us, the thought of talking about you to others strikes a lot of fear in our hearts, or, or how can I really do this, or fears of inadequacy, or whatever it is. And I pray this week, Lord, that you would give grace upon grace upon grace. That whatever lies the enemy has been throwing at us to make us feel like that we're not worthy to be used by you, that we're not competent enough to be used by you, or we don't know enough, or whatever it is, that all those will just get shattered this week. And guys, as you stir our hearts to see more of your glory, as you break our hearts over the losses of the world, I pray as well the Holy Spirit would fill us and comfort us and equip us to see that you want to use us and we're part of your plan. Or show us, each one of us, and show us as a church what it looks like to be faithful as your ambassadors, your ministers of reconciliation. Lord, we just want to say we have open hands. Lord, use us however you choose. You're sovereign, you're the ruler, and you know for each of our lives and for us collectively as a body, or what you want to do through us and where you want the gospel to go because of the people gathered right here today. And I pray we just stand with open hands and say, Lord, do whatever you want in me and through me for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?